This Tome Show production is supported by listeners like you. Keep using the affiliate links for Amazon and dndclassics.com and support the show while you shop. Welcome to the News Desk. Once a month or two, we get together to chat about the latest D&D news. And your two anchors today are me, Sam Dillon. And I'm Jeff Greiner, and we're here to talk about the D&D news from November and December of 2013 with the craziness of the holidays and usually a, a end of December slowdown in D&D news. They, you know, take breaks too. Um, we decided to, to lump two months together. And with us today is our man on the street, Randall Walker, live from the North Pole. Randall, how are things up there? It's cold. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> Very good. So yes. uh, we're going to jump right into the, the lightning round. We've got – no, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Was that Rudolph? Yeah. <laughs> We've got uh, two months' worth of news to talk about, so we're going to try to uh, boom through things pretty quickly here. Uh, on the upside, with the, a couple of exceptions, there wasn't really a, a ton of big heavy-hitting news. So I think we'll still be able to get things through in a, in a relatively reasonable amount of time. So, Randall, you're going to start us off with uh, our lightning round stuff. You're our digital reporter today, like it or not. That's right. In digital news today, um, the Neverwinter MMO has a new module called Shadow Mantle, and Lords of Waterdeep is out for the iOS. Very good. Uh, And none of us play the MMO, right? Uh, Negative. Yeah. Uh, and I've played the Lords of Waterdeep, um, the iOS version, uh, and it plays pretty much like the board game does, except now I get to play it more because I can just play, you know, one or two rounds a day and then move on. Sadly, I've never played the board game either. I've never played Lords of Waterdeep yet, oh. so. You should check it out. It's a good game. I should. If I had people who would play it with me, I would probably do that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> So, Sam, you're next in the lightning round. I am next. Um, well, uh, my topic is the D&D encounters, and uh, the first item is that the Legacy of the Crystal Shard season of encounters has started. That was a product that they produced very much like uh, Murder in Baldur's Gate. You could buy it in the stores for about $30, and it came with a GM uh, screen and a couple of booklets and whatnot, and um, they had their rollout and launch weekend, and now that's that season is going strong. Um, but the, the sort of more interesting news is that the next season has been announced. It's called Scourge of the Sword Coast, and its launch weekend is going to be February 15th and 16th, and the first weekly play date would be the 19th of February, and it will end in early May. And it takes place around Daggerford and uh, is is designed to uh, have the storyline connect in some small tangential part, at least, with the Ghosts of Dragonspear Castle, which was released last year at Gen Con. And uh, the more interesting thing about that is that Scourge of the Sword Coast will not be available in stores for sale. It will be a PDF-only release, and so you will have to go to dndclassics.com to purchase that. And if you are going to do so, please go through the Tome Show link so that we get a couple of pennies for that. Um, Also, the other interesting thing is that because the playtest packet is no longer available for download, that product, when you get it from dndclassics.com, will come with a bit of rules with it so that you can actually play without having previously downloaded the packet if you happen to not. Yeah, so um, I, I imagine it to be sort of like the you know quick start rules for D&D mm-hmm, Max, right? Exactly, exactly. And also, noting that, you will note that this is the first of the Sundering Adventures that is not backwards compatible. The first two, uh, Murder in Baldur's Gate and Legacy of the Crystal Shard, were marketed as compatible with 3rd edition and 4th edition D&D. This one, Scourge of the Sword Coast, is the first one that is solely marketed towards D&D Next. It's interesting that you say that, though, because um, I just recorded an episode earlier this week with somebody about converting Adventures for one edition into another edition. And mm-hmm. he's been playing uh, – he ran uh, Murder in Baldur's Gate and is currently running Legacy mm-hmm. of the Crystal Shard for his local game store in fourth edition because that's what the game store owner wanted him to run it in. Mm-hmm. And it, w- w- it has not been as easy for him uh, as one might expect from a, from a backwards compatible product. And I and I wonder well, if if the decision so, decision with the current one is 
you know, it's not, yeah. it was never really that compatible to begin with. So let's, and, let's stop pretending it is. Yeah. Well, you're, you're echoing my exact sentiment. And yeah. if you recall, when we talked about murder and Baldur's Gate on this, on the Tome show, mm-hmm. I made a point of saying that it's not really a fourth edition product. And for them to market it as such is a little disingenuous. Yeah. Um, as much as a, an experienced DM probably could, and if that person had a lot of the maps and tokens and everything in their possession already, they probably could do a really good job of it. But it really was not set up. It, it needed some conversion work. It wasn't just a purely backwards compatible product. Well, and if nothing and else... So I've been complaining about that for months. <laughs> no, that's good. Um, and and I, I hadn't recalled that, but I'm, but I'm sure you did. Um, my my take from him was uh, was that basically it, it comes down to some fundamental assumptions of how you play the game that fourth mm-hmm. edition makes that next and third edition don't make. Do not make that's right? correct about about the the length of a workday and and you know because you have rechargeable powers and you know mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff um, the the challenge doesn't quite play out um, like one would want it to necessarily. Right. Right. So. Exactly. Now I find it interesting that they've they've gone PDF only. Um, it, it it concerns me that perhaps the encounter strong program program is not as strong as it used to be. Um, I would assume that it probably is not, but that doesn't concern me because we've just been in a period of a two year play test. That's true. So the other thing that that that. This points out is that more and more we're seeing we we've been seeing some fourth edition stuff starting to leak into D and D classics, and and we we've even started to seeing a few D and D next stuff leaking mm-hmm. in, and now we're seeing you know announcements of more D and D next stuff going into D and D classics, and more and more the title D and D classics is becoming less and less appropriate. If it's if it's there, that's where they're mm-hmm. releasing new product. It's not really classics anymore, is it? Eh, you know, you could say D and D is the classic role playing system. Yeah, I mean, you, you could, but that's not the spirit in which the name was was created. Yeah, but but the spirit was here's a place to download things from all editions of the of Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, I, I I would argue at first it was here's a place where you can download stuff from older editions of Dungeons and Dragons because they didn't even have fourth edition for a long time. Yeah, but but you know, I will, I refuse to complain about them. Uh, throwing third and oh, no. fourth edition stuff on there because I'm really happy about yeah, that. Yeah, no, I'm not going to complain because I think that yeah. bodes well for the idea of there being many future digital mm-hmm. products available, maybe day of release, you know, uh, yeah. D&D books and stuff available, which would be awesome. I'm just fi- I just find, find it more humorous that the name becomes increasingly <laughs> inappropriate, much like the increasingly inappropriately named Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy trilogy, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> uh, and speaking of, um, you mentioned, um, the, well, as we've been talking extensively now about D&D Classics, uh, they did announce in the last uh, little bit of a bunch of new modules and new things coming out on D&D mm-hmm. Classics. They are continuing to add to that library. I was very excited to see that uh, it was this week or next week they're releasing a bunch of um, Eberron adventures, including the one I've been wanting to get to run for my next campaign. So, Oh, wow. Oh, good. So, um, the last lightning round um, announcement is that the Adversary has been released. That is the latest, the third in the Sundering series, the, I think, third in the Brimstone Angel series as well, uh, by Aaron Evans, taking the character of Farida and seeing how she plays into the Sundering. I have not read it yet. It is our next book club book. I'm looking forward to digging into it. Aaron is a fantastic Realms author. Uh, and this series has shown her to be such. Um, and I love that it deals heavily with um, the machinations of devils, which is something I'm always interested in in my D&D stories. Um, and there's also a new Sundering video that you know continues to tell the story or tease people into the story of, of the Sundering and what's been happening and where they're going next. Um, so that's that. If I were to recommend any... Forgotten Realms books to anybody at this time, I would say start with Aaron Evans because it's a it's a it's a relatively different take on the realms, um, but it's uniquely Realmsian. But she has a a fresh perspective on telling stories in the realms that a lot of the other authors don't. So at this point, if you want to know more about the adversary um, and that release, uh, I happen to have spoken to Aaron Evans just about a week or two before the book came out. It was a few weeks back now, uh, so we're going to go ahead and jump to that interview now. And we are here now with Aaron M. Evans, author of The Adversary. We're going to talk to her this time about the latest 
great hot sundering thing coming out. How you doing, Aaron? Good. How are you? I am fantastic. So we're here to talk about the adversary, the the your newest book uh, and the the latest book in the sundering. Yes. So what is the adversary? Um, the book, or are you asking the title? Um, <laughs> the book. <laughs> yeah. No, I, it's fun because I, I, I like that title because I think it, it, the interesting thing about the adversary is it, it just implies opposition. Sure. So it's not necessarily the evil person, but it's the person opposing something. So there, there are many characters in the book who could be the adversary. Um, the book is about uh, my character, Farida, and her part sort of in the sundering. Uh, what happens is... Very early on, she makes a decision trying to protect two of the people she cares most about, um, and it ends up having really chilling ramifications. So she spends the book trying to right the wrong she accidentally made. Um, at the same time, she's being pulled into a sort of confusing uh, interplay between the Nine Hells um, and uh, Netheril, and and through them, Asmodeus and Shar. Um, it's, you know, it shows more of what the gods are doing and trying to do as the Sundering unfolds, um, as they sort of scramble to figure out what's going to happen and, and how do I come out of this best um, through, but but again, through their worshippers. Um, there's no big set pieces with the gods chit-chatting. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's, there's lots of um, intrigue and, and crazy evildoers and Good-hearted heroes and, and all that great and angsty, and angsty teenagers, right? Uh, well, yes, and, <laughs> and also no. I mean, the the Sundering takes place sometime, quite some time after um, uh, so we've Lesser grown Evil. Up. So, so they they are a little older by the end of the book. You, you see, you'll be pleased. <laughs> Very good. I'm looking to. I'm looking forward to seeing how they develop and mature as the, as they get older too. So. Uh, and you mentioned that this is part of the Sundering, and it gives us some view of sort of how the gods are, what the gods are doing, and where they're going with all this. So, how do you see this this novel as a whole fitting into the Sundering process? Like, what what Sunderingness are we getting from you that we're not getting other places? Um, my book, when they when they had the story summits, and they made, I remember they made on up on the whiteboard kind of a big chart, and there was you know which which elements are coming into play in which time periods and who's going to handle them. Um, my book has a lot more about the chosen um, who you've seen showing up in uh, the first two books and you get a, an idea of why that is and what the scope of it is. Um, and as well as, you know, a sense of, of where, where Netheril stands Um it, it is, it is, and it's, it's hard because in a sense, it's a, it's a middle book, right? Sure. In the middle of the Sundering, you're kind of watching it, it continue to expand and, and unfold. Um, so yeah, I would, I would say that's mm-hmm. where the focus is. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's, I mean, I, I feel like, um, Salvatore's book, the first book of the series was really almost a, a prelude to what's going on, you know? Yeah. Uh, cause we, cause things are happening with the Sundering, but we really don't see like, what's happening yet, you know, or mm-hmm. what the ramifications are of that. So I'm looking forward to seeing more of that as, as we look at uh, Paul's book, which we're reading for our book club right now, and, and then getting into the adversary um, with your book. So you talked about, you know, we talked about a little bit about this working with the Sundering and all that kind of stuff. And you talked about the writer, uh, the, your, you guys' summit to come up with who's doing what and how and all that. So how has the this cross-branding, Sundering-ishness, how has that changed your writing process? Um, you know, I think the, the only way it's really changed is that there are more people to make sure, um, uh, make sure of, to make sure that they've seen the right pieces. Um, I don't think in previous books I've ever cut scenes and sent them to authors to get their okay on them. But, mm-hmm. um, for example, in the adversary, there was a point where, um, this character, Serchi, uh, who's shown up in my other books mm-hmm. is having a discussion with another devil about, basically what happens in Paul's book and, and how it, it mm. has affected the nine hells. Um, and so I sent that to Paul and I said, do you feel like this is one, a reasonable explanation of it and two, a, a reasonable place where things could be, you know, a year later. Um, there's a character in the adversary uh, stead who is, he, he's not, he's a pretty minor character in the book, but he becomes a very important character in Richard Lee Byers book. Um, so I was sending Byers the, 
dialogue um, and things like that and saying, you know, does this voice match? Is this, this sound okay? Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of stuff, making sure that stuff works is, is really important to me. Um, and it's nice to have, you know, people that you're working with who, who it's important to them too, right? Mm-hmm. And, you, and I imagine you did some, some similar work with, when you wrote in uh, Neverwinter, yes, with Bob Salvatore, because he was, he was writing in that area at the same time. You know, the way that one unfolded, because it was his book was so much earlier chronologically in the in uh. the setting than mine, um, the, the back and forth was mostly sort of through the editor. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it was it was kind of a, um, oh, this isn't lining up. So any meeny mine, you fix. Um, okay. And it's so always it a little it felt a little less collaborative and a little more like, you know, we're working in tandem. Mm-hmm. Um, if it looks collaborative, I'm really pleased. But uh, <laughs> and and that's just that was just because the way that project, you know, started, it, it wasn't, it didn't have that intention as much as the Sundering, which I feel like from the very start, the 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 intention was that it is collaborative. That the novels are talking to the RPGs, that are talking to the video game people, and and we're all looking for what makes our piece of of the whole work best. Mm-hmm. Uh, and speaking of that collaboration with or that collaborative parallel running with Salvatore, it sounds like you're kind of moving the same way here, right? Because Salvatore's interaction with the Sundering largely had to do with Netheril, and it looks like you're de- dealing with the Sundering and with Netheril. Um, so are we going to see some overlap between those two elements, or is it different situations in Netheril that you're both dealing with? There are different situations, um, but, you know, throughout there's an understanding. We You know, we had... All those discussions, they also commissioned a document, um, a, a sort of history of the Sundering um, that we could kind of look at and see, okay, well, here's where um, any given nation is. Um, and, and so Netheril is obviously a big part. Char is obviously a big part of the Sundering. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're sort of picking up different pieces. Uh, I'm going to forget the name of, you know, for example, that Bob had the, the coven. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, man. I can't remember the name uh, that, that Rokia goes to, but uh, the Caddy Prison. And then, um, and, and that's sort of a different piece than, you know, the, the wizard that I use. Um, they're, they're, they're sort of in different areas of, of the, of the culture. They have different social standing. And obviously, you know, Paul's talking about the, the princes They're they're on a totally different level. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we were all very aware of what each of the other authors were working on and, and how to make sure that, that these all look like different facets of the same culture that has the same goals that, you know, um, that, that it ends up kind of painting a bigger picture by looking through these different windows, I guess. Okay. Now this is the third book with Farida. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, at this point, are you looking to continue telling Farida's story? I mean, is this the third book of many more? Is are you looking to branch out into other protagonists, or bring back some other ones, or spin some off, or do a little bit of both? Where do we see this are fitting you, in? Are you angling for a Godcatcher sequel? I'm not. Um. I'm not not angling for a Godcatcher sequel. Um, they, actually, I just turned in uh, the first draft of uh, the next Farida book. Um, okay. So you know, there's there's definitely a larger story arc. That, that I've, I feel like I've invested in that I, I need to, to mm-hmm. finish off before I, I think about doing anything else. But I, you know, these characters really resonate with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like, I like writing about them. Um, and partly because of the way that I've been telling the story, it is, it is a lot of little sort of story arcs braided together. So giving them room to kind of take shape and, and, and land in a, in an organic fashion is going to take, um, some books, mm-hmm. uh, wizards. I hate to say that they've said that they're like totally cool. And they're like, you write what you, what you want, because that's how they are now. And, and we all know everything is going to, you know, will change tomorrow. Kind of. Sure. That's just how, how business is. Right. Um, but, but they, um, they want me to write what I, what I want to write. Um, and so you know, they said, if you get tired of this, you can try something else. Um, if you want to keep writing for Rita, you know, as, as long as people are buying it, they want it. Right. Um, so I, I can't say whether this is going to turn into, you know, something on the scale of Dritz, but it's at least going to go for a few more books. Okay. Well, and, and we keep referring to it as, you know, Farida's books, but, um, I mean, it's, it's the Brimstone Angels, right? It's more than just Farida. There's a, yeah. there's a team involved here. Yeah. Unless you um, start killing, unless you start killing off my darlings, and then we're gonna have to talk. <laughs> I'll never tell. <laughs> um, the yeah, actually, no. With the next book, which um, I 
they've asked me to hold the title on for just a little longer, but we talked about um, how, how, how do we brand it, right? This isn't, this next book is going to be not part of the Sundering, but do we say it's a, it's a Brimstone Angels novel or a Farida book? Um, do we say it's a companion to the adversary? And, and I argued really strongly for, I, I think you should call it a Brimstone Angels book because it isn't just Farida, right? This isn't the, these books have multiple points of view and multiple characters who have their own things going on. Farida is always going to be sort of the through line. Um, you might have characters that, that come in and, and, and are important for this book. And then, you know, a, a great example, I think, is in the last book, Tam Zawad um, was a very major character um, in The Adversary. He is present, but he's he's got other things to do. Hmm. Um, so, you know, he's kind of takes a step back. Um and so, yeah, I think I think seeing that that ensemble is is mm-hmm. kind of important. Well, and if nothing else, um, it's you've been branding this this series as Brimstone Angel books longer than they've been Sundering books, right? So this is true. <laughs> uh, so th- I think there's some value there. Um, so generally speaking, you've been this is your is this fourth book in the realms? Yes. So, what do you think you bring to the Forgotten Realms as a whole that other authors maybe don't? Um, well, for, at least for the Sundering, I'm the only one who's only written in fourth edition. Um, so what I, I, I see the, 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 those changes in, mm-hmm. in, a, I think in a, a more, I don't want to say more positive light. Cause, cause there's things that, that I think all of the authors who've worked through it that they enjoyed about it. But, um, like I, I don't sort of look back at with nostalgia at the time I wrote for second edition, for sure. example. Um, so I, I've definitely been the one to say, if you, you know, when we talk about what stays and what goes, you know, what, what do we keep um, of the fourth edition changes and what do we revert and what do we make into something wholly new? Um, you know, I, I definitely have championed some things, finding a way to keep some things um, yeah. like the dragonborn, right? If, if, I think that that the, maybe if I weren't there, that that would have been something that they might have considered dropping. Mm-hmm. Um, but I made the point that I really did not want to have you know Mahen be the the younger daughter in Family Matters who disappears between seasons and nobody ever talks about it. Um, mm-hmm. So how can we figure out a way to have this but make it feel more like it fits mm-hmm. and keep the you know bring back the things that people miss. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, there's there's that part. I'm also I'm, I <laughs> it's been it's been pointed out to me several times in these interviews. Uh, I'm the only woman in the lineup, and I'm the only one whose main character is also a woman. Um, so I I, I don't want to be I bring that, um, but you know there's I, I I could not possibly argue that my viewpoint is not shaped by my gender. So there's there is that aspect of it um, mm-hmm. that I honestly Troy Denning cannot tell you what it's like to be a woman. <laughs> At least I don't think so. No, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know him that well. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and and I pointed this out at Gen Con as well. Um, you're also the only one that's probably closer to the beginning of your career than the end of it. That's, you know, I am the youngest. That is definitely true. <laughs> they will not let me forget that. Right. I can't tell you how many times somebody will bring something. Bob will bring up some um, – like adventure, some classic adventure. And it'd be like, I remember playing that one as teacher. Aaron was probably not born yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it also allows you to, to take a perspective that they've long lost. You know, I can't remember very well what it was like when I was, you know, eight, you know, that was just too, too long beyond my, my scope. You know, you, you have some vision of, you know, a certain, a certain range of, of life mm-hmm. that, that they've likely, you know, bypassed in the in the 50s and 60s right (laughs) i think i mean i think that that's that's where having like a diversity of of voices is really beneficial is that you get a slightly different perspective and even if you're actually talking about characters who aren't anything like yourself um you know i'm i'm not uh tam is a great example i'm not a 50 year old calishite man I don't actually know what it's like to be a 50-year-old Kalashite man, but my take on that is going to be different than, you know, Ed's take on that or Bob's take on that or, mm-hmm. or you know, any other author. Um, and so having people with lots of different viewpoints is, is kind of nice for that, that you can – you get more of a range um, in what you create. Mm-hmm. And may, this may be related depending on, on where you want to go with it, but, but of your books and especially The Adversary, what are you most proud of? 
Wow, that is a big question. <laughs> um, Bubble your noodle here. Oh, yeah. I only ask the hard questions. You know, the the thing that I look back over these books and, and I I feel really proud of is is finding a way to tell a story that I'm passionate about, um, to, to tell a character-based story in, in a medium that is not generally considered to be a place to tell a character-based story, right? If you ask someone who doesn't read Realms novels, they really think they're, they're very plotty and, and pulpy and, and um, that you can't really do anything more complex with them, which I just, that makes me crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and doing that in a way that, that honors the setting. I liked, I, I, I hope that I've managed to tell stories um, that feel realmsy um, and, you know, things like, like, ugh, I might choke up a little. <laughs> Having Ed Greenwood tell me that, you know, he's proud that these books are in his setting is one of the greatest compliments I've ever gotten um, because I have worked so hard to make sure of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so managing to, to sort of please these things that if I think sometimes if you line them up, you'd say, well, you can't do all of that. Um, I think that's the thing I'm most proud of because I've worked really hard to, to make a book that can do all of those things. Cause I believe it, right. I believe that you can tell, you know, emotional gratifying stories that are also really great adventures and are funny that are scary and that are set in the realms. Yep, even if your girl does keep falling for the bad boy. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, anything else you want to let people know about the book before we head off? So The Adversary comes out on December 3rd. Um, If you'd like a signed copy, I'm running an e-signing on my blog, which is slushlush.com, S-L-U-S-H-L-U-S-H.com. Um, you, there's a little link at the top and you can click on that and send me a note and I'll send you a signed copy of the book. Very cool. I'm going to keep the e-signing going, um, at least through the end of the year for, you know, people who want to send holiday gifts and stuff. Okay. Very good. And they've been sending me, um, so far, at least for the first two books, they've been sending me hardback copies. So, uh, if they continue doing that, I will collect all six of the hardback copies and maybe lug them off to Gen Con and try to get them signed and give them away as prizes. So. That might be that might work out pretty well. So there we go. I look forward to uh, to reading the book, or rather, I've been listening to the audiobook versions um, and enjoying that. Oh, we'll, cool! We'll have to see how many uh, words they can pronounce correctly. They were very very <laughs> diligent, and and I had I filled out a word list very very early awesome. on. So um, it sounds like 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 this is going to be top notch. All right. Well, let, let me test you here. S H O U. Man, that's one I I don't say out loud because I know because I'm like, is it shao or is it shoe? Ah, I don't remember. Which yeah. is it? Uh, um, I I would be okay with either, um, yeah. but I listened to an Air Scott Debbie book uh, on Audible, and they I can't even remember how they pronounce it now, but it was really really wrong. Oof. Like it, and and it didn't come up often, but every now and then, and it, it it's like. Um, it was another one of his books where they where the word drow appeared once in the book, but they they pulled a drow on me and it, it chafed. <laughs> you know? so. That's yeah. That's when like I you said that and I literally winced. Yeah, uh, <laughs> like you have a physical reaction, drow. No. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I have. I know some people say tiefling, but when I hear tiefling, I have a little wince. So. Yeah, I, I, I'm tief, I'm tiefling. Me too. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll talk to you again, hopefully, in February, and we will talk about uh, the book after we've read it at that point for the book club. So everybody, uh, if you haven't been checking out the book clubs, you should be heading over there because we are doing the sundering for the entire year. Um, Every two months, we're reading a book and uh, talking to the authors as much as we can. I'm looking forward to it. All right. And we are back from that interview. I hope you all enjoyed that. Now we're going to get into our in-depth topics We're going to put 10 minutes on the clock. Let me pull out my timer. So I get to go first this time around, and I have the big news that just came out like, what, a couple of hours ago? Yep. Like I wasn't sure what I was going to talk about, uh, what my big topic was going to be, and then I got an email at 5.57. That was less than three hours ago. Um, from breaking news, according to this, won't be out tonight probably, but breaking news nonetheless. Um, December 19th, 2013, 
Dateline, Renton, Washington. Wizards of the Coast today announced that the highly anticipated new rule system for Dungeons & Dragons will release in the summer of 2014. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> <laughs> Is everybody shocked and surprised? Rudolph really. is shocked. Yeah. Not really surprised. No. I'm not surprised this is This is what I've been anticipating for a while now. Um... But it's good to know, and 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 now we now what I want to know is okay. So they were going to release it like in the past. Uh, what was it? Third edition, I think they released one book a month for three months, le- yeah, leading oh God, leading, leading up to Gen Con. Hated that. Yeah, that, oh, that man, was man. I hated that. that. Well, although as a reviewer, that would be fantastic, right? Because then, then we can well, look maybe. at one book a month. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but no, as a player, that that yeah, that drives you batty. Um, Alternatively, we might get it all, you know, a month or two before Gen Con, and that way people have a chance to learn the rules as Gen Con comes up. Or I could also Down see it. them. I also could see them releasing it. Releasing <laughs> <Sam>. it. <laughs> that was hysterical. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I can also see them releasing it at Gen Con, and that's the big Gen Con hype. You know, that's what I'm thinking. It's the 40th anniversary of D and D. How could they pass that up? And to release it at Gen Con, where you have you know, 40,000 captive RPG fans Mm -hmm. and you can, and you're wizards of the coast. So you can put a ton of marketing into making a huge booth, humongous events, do all kinds of other stuff. It just doesn't make sense to do it any other way. Well, I, I will agree and disagree. Mm -hmm. I think what you'll see is a, what, what we, what they call in the retail industry, a soft launch in, um, uh, June or July. To ramp up interest, and then there will be, like you said, Sam, it will be all over Gen Con. You will not be able to swing a dead cat or a dead gamer without hitting something about D&D next, and it will be a huge Gen Con event. Without a doubt, I agree that that will happen, but I do believe there will be a soft launch one or two months ahead of that to help build interest so that you have that huge impact at Gen Con in August. I could see, I could see either way. And in the past, honestly, what they've done is the soft launch. They've, yeah. they've done the launch a month or two before, and that way, when you get to Gen Con, a bu- you have a bunch of people already evangelizing it because they've been playing the game for a month or two, or at least they've been reading it for a month or two. Mm. So I could, yeah, s- maybe. All right, the very next sentence says or finishes with these words: "The rules are complete." That means that as of December nineteenth, they're saying the rules are done. Mm-hmm. Like done, done. That's what they're saying. Do you think so? Do you think that means that the rules are done, but like they're still building monsters? Because that's not really rules, is it? I think that means that the core rules are being sent to the printer. You think so? You think the the core books are done and they're being sent to the printer right now? Well, maybe just the core PHB. Maybe not the maybe not a monster manual and maybe not a DMG. But in order, if we'll see a three book. Set this time. I'm not sure. I mean, I can see it go either way. Yeah, I don't know. I think. Um, I think there's the a big lot. Trend has been one. Has been one book, but um, it has. But I think there's a lot of history and nostalgia and momentum mm-hmm. to have three. Well, that's true too. I mean, and I think that if they had the the playtest packet without art, all the beastery and the players book and the little twenty pages of. DM advice by itself, all of those together without art are like four or 500 pages. Put art in there, you're going to extend it by at least 100 pages. Mm. I don't think they're going to do it. I think they will stick with the three-book format because they also don't want to uh, become Paizo. They don't want people to accuse them of doing doing Pathfinder. No, I don't know if that would happen, but... Oh, it's it's going to happen no matter what yeah. because they did a public playtest and that's what people said. Oh, oh, Paizo took all of your fans and now you're trying to get them back by doing what Paizo did. Yeah, I think I think there's been too much effort and too much discussion about embracing the past to completely change the format mm-hmm. of the release at this point. You know. Now that's not to say because I think what I said to you guys before the before we started recording was they might do a basic I don't think they're going to do this but it is an option they mm-hmm. could do a basic release that is mm-hmm. a one book very small almost like a you know like the old Moldvay basic or Holmes basic or or you know the 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 famous 1983 red box where it's one book it's about 65 or 100 pages maybe and it 
it has like the most basic rules ever. Not a huge ton of art, but it's a product that anybody could pick up and play. Yeah, and I think th- I think there would be a market for that, and I think it would be a, a good product to to sell. Mm-hmm. I I want that to come out the same time as as the complete rules, right? Because I because I'm not personally interested in that product, but I'm interested mm-hmm. in the complete rules. But I'm I'm interested in there being a product like that. So like if I've got a middle school student interested in getting into the game, I can point them at that product as a good way right. of starting off. Exactly. I guess the I guess the thing I'm seeing is the the trend I'm seeing, and I've seen it. I think. Um, with like 13th age and Numenera is that you'll have a, you'd have one complete core book that includes some monsters, your DM advice, your player's information. And then what you might have as a side option is a bestiary that expands the monster list considerably. And then maybe, you know, and then these other optional books that they keep talking about that they have in Mm -hmm. the past. So uh, that's my that's my opinion. I don't know if that's going to happen. Who knows? It's really up in the air at this point. Oh yeah. I'm totally just, gesticulating right. wildly and sure. making huge guesses so, too. Yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, I'm hoping that um that they have a digital compendium with it as well so that it doesn't matter how the books are arranged because I can just find what I need online and, and through searching, mm-hmm. right? Like they did for fourth. Yeah, yeah, the digital options for this game will be interesting to see because zero things have been announced. Yeah. So. Right. Well, and in fairness, Although, they've learned not to it, announce. <laughs> yeah, what what was what has been announced, though, actually, this should, should have probably been a, a quick announcement in the lightning round. But uh, so Dungeon and Dragon magazines are going dark at the end of this month, mm-hmm. and then they're going to do one final digital update for fourth edition to the digital tools in March. And then those will no longer be updated, but presumably they will still be available. Right. Yes. So what I'm presuming then is those will be still there. And if there are digital tools for fifth edition at all, they will be separate from or a component of yeah see oh they'd be separate i'm sure digital digital tools are the reason i got into a discussion with somebody earlier this week about why they thought dnd next was not going to be coming out this year not because of the publishing issues uh and how long it takes to publish and print something but they didn't think it would come out this year because of how long it take would take to get the digital tools ready that that in their opinion it would be foolish to release the game without digital tools ready to go uh, but they don't want to flop it like they have in the past, you know. And, and mm. you know, I don't know. I don't. One, I don't know how long it, it'll take them to get digital tools ready. Uh, two, I would say they honestly, I feel like they should have digital tools and they should have at least the basic ones ready to go at launch. You know, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's necessary. And I think they're smart to not announce anything in that. Oh no, realm. they're real smart not to announce yeah. it. Yeah. But I'm hoping I'm hoping that you know by the time Gen Con rolls around, uh, we have a character builder and a compendium at least. Well, see, the thing is, is that one of the things that they have uh, built hype around is the fact that this is a much more streamlined game as far as character creation is concerned. Much sure. easier, much simpler to understand. You, since everything, since a lot of your options are locked into the class you choose. There's not a lot of um, pick from column A, column B, column C type uh, menu sort of things. So it's almost unnecessary to, I mean, not unnecessary. It, let me let me put it, this it's way. All, it, Digital tools would be a nice to have, right. but not a have to have. No, no, no I, I completely yeah. agree. But it'd be, it would be a nice to have in the same yeah. way it would have been nice to have in third edition and it would have been nice to have in second edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it obviously wasn't necessary because we didn't have them and we got by just fine. All right. <laughs> That's the end of my time. Did I miss anything? Oh yeah, we didn't talk about how the playtest was over. <laughs> you know, playtest. The playtest has officially uh, been pulled. You can no longer download the playtest play documents uh, as of the fifteenth of December. So that's done. Um, and of course, that happened. Right. What they pulled that, and four days later they announced the the new edition was coming out. So that's that's clearly right. what, what why that happened. Right. But on the other hand, if you absolutely have to get a copy of the rules, remember that. DndClassics.com will have them. Well, it'll, as part it'll, of the, as it'll part have of the them. Scourge of the of the right. Coast. It'll have them as part of Adventures, and maybe right. not the complete versions. Sure. You know, I would, well, but enough to play. So if that's what you're right. looking for, then I'll tell you what. Yeah. I told all of my players who are in my current DND Next campaign to make sure they downloaded the packet before the 15th hit. Because yeah, <laughs> you know, I did too. I, I I sent out messages. Yeah. Yep. All right. That's the end of my time. That's the end of the big news. Sam, you want to talk about design. Go. 
All right. Well, I am going to be discussing the the sort of two uh, – they're, they basically are one article but split into two parts. They are the design finesse articles by Mike Merles. They are the legends and lore articles from November 25th is the first one, and the second one was published on December 2nd. So they're relatively recent articles, and basically what Merles does is he – he he make his thesis statement in this particular set of articles is that if you tell a game designer that their game is elegant you are putting them on top of the world like that that is the best most awesome wonderful compliment you could possibly give a game designer because it means that your game works and it works well and it's a beautiful thing in and of itself and all the pieces fit together and and work like a well-oiled machine and it and it just fits and the feel that comes out of that thing working is fantastic that's what you're telling them and what he says is that if you want to have a design that someone might call elegant, you have to actually think about that as you're designing it. It's not just this weird byproduct of your final thing not having thought about it the entire time. Like you have to really have a focus on making a design have elements that will make it elegant to the the fans or to the players or to the audience that you're that you're designing for. And he points out that you can do that with a, a few relatively basic concepts. And so here here are the concepts. The first concept is if you need to solve a big problem, one of the ways to solve a problem that will tend to make your game more elegant is to solve a problem by removing it from the actual system. Mm. So if you have a big, crucial, critical thing that you think is a critical part of your RPG, but when you put it in there, it starts causing all sorts of problems with all the other 90% of your rules – Try to take it back out and solve that problem a different way. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever problem that thing was fixing, take it out, take that thing out, and now try to solve that other problem the other way, a different now, way. It's worth noting that one throughout all these um, four different rules or whatever mm-hmm. that, that he lays out, he also continuously goes back to this idea without actually laying it out explicitly. He lays out this idea that if you change something and now it doesn't feel like D and D anymore. Mm-hmm. Then, then don't do that, right? Because it has right. to. But, it, but more than it has to be realistic, more than it has to be whatever, more than it has to be elegant. I would argue it has to feel like D and D. So, like, if mm-hmm. the problem is, you know, the strength statistic, well, you're not going to just get rid of that. That's gonna right. <laughs> that's gonna be right, re- right, revised, right. not right. eliminated. Right. Sure, and that yeah, and that's that's a good point to make. So, the, the exam he, in each of these, it's a pretty interesting set of articles to read because in each of these, he gives an example of some how they did one thing. So, the example for the solve a problem by removing it is the fact that um, saving throws make character creation and make the 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 execution of the game much more complex than it needs to be. And well, so saving throws in, as they were in third saving throws as they were in fourth edition. So he's talking about when they were first talking about designing fifth edition, what are they going to do and what are they going to change? And they went through basically everything and said, change it, lose it, keep it, you know. And one of the things that they said was, look, saving throws have got to be changed. There's, you know, they, they put too much complexity. And so in, in short, rather than changing them, they just completely, they took out the way that it was done in 4th edition, 100%. They took out fortitude, reflex, and will. That's gone. And what they did was replace it with a much simpler, much more streamlined, very sort of, relatively speaking, loose kind of saving throws that are still important to the game, but it's not a giant big deal when you're doing character creation. And ultimately what happens is it fits into the game a lot better, and so it doesn't make the game seem any more complex than it was before you had to deal with a saving throw during the course of play, basically. Mm-hmm. Whereas in 4th edition, because there's three different saving throws and you have to calculate them differently and different enhancements can can change those and they all get worked on differently, even though that was the case and it seemed re- like it, it you were able to sort of change those to match whatever the situation was, it turned out to be a really complex thing because each of those things are different turning wheels that you have to deal with. Now saving throws are just one thing. So basically he removed the complexity. He didn't remove saving throws. He removed the complexity around saving throws. And so that was the example for that mm-hmm. thing. The second sort of precept that he set, that he puts forth is one bullet – 
many targets. So um, <laughs> I don't know how to – Yeah, this, this, this concept was this, a little more nebulous to me. This one is a little more nebulous. Basically what he's saying is um, lots of people – what he's saying is they got lots of feedback for the playtest, and that's really wonderful. But but part of the problem with the playtest is people thought they were going to give playtest feedback and that their exact comment was going to be acted upon. Or if, <laughs> if, if 50 – I mean he doesn't say it like that, but basically that's the idea I'm getting is that you know part of the problem with doing a playtest is lots of people think their item is going to get – you know, noted and worked on. But when you're a design team and you're creating a whole game, you can't just make every change that every playtest participant requests and see how that works because you have to look at the big picture. Especially when there's there's 175,000 of them. Especially when there's that many of them, exactly. And so, um, you know, forgetting just the economy of scale there and the sheer numbers, even if it was only 10 people, if you if you're getting playtest feedback from ten people, there has to be some someone on the design team or some group on the design team that is looking at the big picture and deciding, yes, that's a valid comment. We need to really look into that, but we need to figure out how to to address that thing without making the change that that person is suggesting because the change that person is suggesting has this ripple effect on the entire big picture. And I think it's the the description he was giving also kind of goes the other way that people would give very specific bits of feedback, but mm-hmm. what they weren't <clears throat> recognizing is that there was a deeper ingrained problem that caused that issue. Right. And right. so if you can fix the one bigger problem, then the smaller things take care right. of themselves. That's the one bullet many targets issue. So it goes both ways, though, right? Right. Like, I think so. You're, yeah. You're you're you need to have an eye, and in order to understand that it goes both ways, is your eye is on the big picture, but there's things coming in from both sides. Right. There's things that are coming in from from the little teeny tiny minutia side that will spread out and affect the big picture in ways that you don't know, so you can't really change that. And then there's things that you need to change the big picture, and the only way to change that is by going to some other minutia part on the other side and changing that because that's that core root of the problem that is actually creating that effect that looks like it's something else. Mm -hmm. And you can't really see that unless you have your eyes on the big picture. Mm -hmm. Well, my only only real comment of this is that when you talk about playtests of this scale, um, you said something like 175,000 or something like that, mm-hmm. um, uh, pieces of uh, uh, advice or information. A great deal of that is going to wash out. You're going to have a bunch of people that agree with each other, and so they're basically saying or asking you to do or or suggesting the same thing in essence. Um, I, I'd love to see the math on this and how it all washed out because mm-hmm. uh, I think a, a big part of that I'm sure it happens. Um, then you're going to have a bunch of you're going to have you know a scattering or the shotgun of of scattering of ideas that are just like totally whack, like um, you know, demons should be a core race, you know, or something like mm, that, right? Right. Um, or bugbears should be a core race, or something weird. Right. Um, and <laughs> so you can you know you can just disre- you can kind of disregard stuff like that. It's like well, that's not really that doesn't really identify D and D like it is, and you know things like that. Um, or, you know, there should be a Pokemon thing or whatever, you know, all this kind of weird stuff. Um, so those you can eliminate. Um, and I think that, like I've heard before, I think the play test was to just make sure they were setting their guideposts correctly. Yeah. I think they knew where they wanted to go with the game. I don't think they were ever saying, we don't know what to do, guys. Help us out. I don't think that was ever the point. No, but I think there were some some fundamental things that they thought were a good idea that were completely scrapped after they got feedback on it. Sure, and I think that was clear after the first couple of playtests yeah. back. There was that one what, back in, what, June or July? It was the that, August one where yeah, they took was, all the skills out. <laughs> that was just totally – people just kind of went, whoops, nope, 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 don't like it. Um, some people loved it, but other people just went, nope, 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 nope. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that, like I said, I think it was a guidepost setting type of, um, exercise. And, um, and I think back last Gen Con, they had, um, uh, you know, back when they released, you know, whatever that book it was, I just sent you. <laughs> <coughs> Ghost of Dragon Spear Castle. Ghost of Dragon Spear Castle. I think, you know, 95% of the rules were probably done mm-hmm. even then. And then it was like. You know, we got we got a little bit more playtest. Let's iron a couple of more things out. Boom! Now we have the announcement um, that comes uh, at the date of this recording, which is December nineteenth. So, 
Um, that's anyway. That's my two cents oh, on now that. You're, now you're gonna tip everybody off on how long it takes Sam to edit. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. I'm gonna edit this right now tonight. You um, showed me. <laughs> so my time's up. That's okay. Your, your time's up. You got halfway through your your things. Did that's you, right. Did you want to just really briefly hit the other two? No, I, I'll mention them. Uh, the the first one is. Or the I guess the third. So the article was split in two, and there were two two bullet points on each thing that he talked about. And the the third one, which is the first on the second article, is think locally to keep rules invisible. And um, basically, it's the idea that um, the only rules that any player should ever have to know. I, I'm totally paraphrasing here. The only rule that any player should ever have to know are the ones that pertain to his exact character. Right. However. And, and that means that all the other rules that mean that's his local rules, right? So this is the local versus regional, right? So locally, if you're a rogue, all you really need to know are the rogue rules. But if you happen to know the other rules of other characters, then you might be able to use that to tactically get an advantage or something. But it's not it's not necessarily not necessary to play. It's not necessary only to be the, an effective. Only the character. player of the wizard needs to know the rules for spellcasting concentration, right. you know, that kind of stuff. Right, right. And the, fighter, only the, the road, fighter can never learn know, that rule right. and be just fine. Right. But if he did know the rule, he might be able to recognize that in an, in an NPC or enemy spellcaster and be able to, to sure. sort of play on that or utilize it to get a tactical advantage. That's the example he gives. Well, there's um, a great RPG. I mean, that's great for role playing as well because right. what you have is a situation where the fighter has a fight and realizes and, and, you know, the wizard gets in trouble with his concentration. And then through role playing, you realize, oh, crap, maybe I can protect the wizard some if he's going to cast a concentrating spell. Mm-hmm. And that's how he learns that rule. You know right. what I'm saying? Yeah. Yep. So I think that's yeah. Go on, Sam. I'm yeah, sorry. I it's just, a good. No, no, no. I know you're you're making my point. That's the, that's yeah. exactly how I took it, and I think it's totally appropriate. And basically, what it does is it takes the sort of uh, you know because fourth edition was a was a rule by exception rule set, right? Um, exception based rule set. And D and D next is not an exception based rule set. However, when you think about the rules that a, that a given player has to know. It is kind of an exception-based rule set because that player only needs to know how to be an effective PC of that type, mm-hmm. not an effective PC of every single type, right? Whereas 4th edition really – it was exception-based, so you really only had to know your own character, but it was really meant to be a team-based game. Mm-hmm. D&D Next is a little less focused on the roles in the team, but it's still taking that portion of of sort of – player knowledge or you know into account and saying okay but you still only really locally need to know your own character you don't really have to worry about anything else mm-hmm. and that's a good thing i mean i it don't is. it's not controversial I, i'm not sure you know I, I don't know what what made him feel it was necessary to put this into the article i don't think that it's i i, I get the sense that there were some people who who you know, well, it goes back to the playtest. People will say, oh, well, this is great for this class, but then it screws over the cleric, or, or this is great for that class, but it screws over the wizard. And, you know, I think his point there is is this, that, you know what, only the GM needs to know what all the characters can do. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, when you're playing that character, if you only ever play wizards, what do you care what a fighter does? What do you care what the rogue does? You only need to know yours, and you can learn the rest through actual play. Well, I think, you don't need, need to know it going in the, into the game. I think yeah. it's also a guiding principle he wanted to have in for the designers, um, mm-hmm. and that's why he included it, because um, it yeah. leads to a game that is complex but can feel simple at the table. Like there's a lot of rules going on, but I only have to know this little subset. And so it's still right. relatively simple for me to get in and play my game. Well, mm-hmm. Sam, I think I can point to the exact reason why. And that's that in um, four e in the fourth edition, if you didn't know, you would lose benefits mm-hmm. in encounters and things like that if you did not know how to play off each other's strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. and a specific ability. And you had abilities keying off each of the other mm-hmm. players. And if you right. didn't know those, you were sometimes at a disadvantage. And right. I think it's – and I hated that actually because it made it much more difficult game to do because if you go off and act on your own – that was a factor in 4E is that since certain player uh, character abilities played off other character abilities and either amplified them or whatever, um, you were at a disadvantage if you did not know those. And so now it's kind of a nice thing not to have to worry about that. You could only folk worry about your own character and what that per- what that person can do. So 
So there's three different reasons. I'm in favor. That, there's yeah. three different reasons that we all said he could, he should have included this in the article. So <laughs> yeah. I guess it's a good thing he did. Yeah. Sam, what's the last one? Um, the last one is to go with the flow. Basically, <laughs> be, be flexible. <laughs> be flex. I mean, and that's it's sort it's sort of an obvious one. Um, but basically, what it is is that you know. A player's understanding – here's what he says. A player's understanding of how the game is supposed to work without any knowledge of the rules should – that should be the way that the game flows at yeah. the table, right? Yeah, like, no, yeah, and this one was actually um, more insightful than, than it sounds like just from, mm-hmm. from the title, right? Well, it's kind of like this. If I'm going to play a rogue and I, and I want walk into the – I walk to the table and I sit down and I'm playing a rogue, whatever I suggest – I might not know as a player how that could work within the constructs of the rules, but the GM and the design of the of the rule set should be able to subsume my action right. so that it can just flow into the game and yeah. and not even I wouldn't even know that there's not a rule for doing that exact thing. Yeah. The example uh, he gives is there's a bunch of guys getting ready to shoot arrows at me. I dive behind the pillar for cover. Mm-hmm. Well, I may I don't have to know the mechanical rules to know that that's a good idea and the mechanics should reflect that somehow, you right. know, or should be able to anyway. Right. So. And the, and it should go without having to stop and say there's a couple of different angles I could take with this part of the article. Part of it is, you know, there doesn't have to be any rules lawyering about how much of a bonus or disadvantage or advantage that you may or may not get from diving in and you have to make, you know, make a dexterity check or you know, what are all these what's the rules around that? There doesn't need to be any rules lawyering going on mm-hmm. regarding that action because the action is such a natural part of what that that character would do that it's just built right into the rule set that the GM could adjudicate that so quickly that it just flows through and there's never any gap where there could be a question about whether it was done properly or not. Yep. Very good. Shall we move on to Randall? Yep. Randall, I'm putting 10 minutes on the clock. All right. So, um, I was originally going to talk about some Q and a stuff, but I was looking at something else and I think I want to talk about it instead. Okay. It's a, it's an article from Mike Morrells that goes back to 1118, so November, which is part of the area we're covering tonight. And it's called A Matter of Priorities. Yes. And um, I thought this was a really good article because mm-hmm. for me it helps outline um, – when you're talking about player or character abilities, um, you have the things that the class can do. You have things that spells can grant you that allow you to do things. And then you have things that feats might grant you an ability to do things or a bonus to do things. And um, and in many cases, these things duplicate. And so um, as they were designing the game, they wanted to look at and prioritize, well, what takes precedence? Is it the spell? Is it the feat? Is it the class? And I'm kind of glad to say that, at least according to this article, they're looking to class um, to help identify, you know, the things that you do best. Mm-hmm. So if, for example, a ranger is the best at being an archer, um, then the ranger is going to be the best at being an archer. A fighter may be able to choose feats that help him become an archer, but he will never be quite as good as the ranger. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a magic user might be able to cast like, you know, a Melf's acid arrow or something, some kind of arrow spell. I'm just, I'm, extrapolating on what the articles say mm-hmm. at this point. Um, but he will not be as good as if, you know, a ranger is shooting an arrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like this idea. I think this is, a, I think it's a very important idea to, um, to, to do that. I love the fact that they are tying these things in to class. Now I know that not everyone out there, and I'm certain that all of our listeners aren't out there agree with me. I know there are a lot of people that like very much the ability to pick and choose your character's abilities, much like you're, you know, on a menu. Um, but I like the idea of tying it into class. I, I, I've always have, maybe it's the, you know, just the way my brain's wired or whatever, but I like that. I like the archetypes. Um, the other example, and, and, and I have a slight disagreement with the second example, um, but that's on – he talks about stealth quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And you know he, mm. he understands that rogues are supposed to be best at stealth, but yet a wizard could cast invisibility. So you know, here I'm thinking you – know, if, if he goes by what he's saying earlier, then obviously the 
stealth should be above invisibility. And he kind of says that, as I recall. He basically says that. I'm not sure I agree with that. Yeah, I don't know that. Well, I don't know that I would do ish, you know? Yeah. Um, Because on one hand, stealth includes not being seen and not being heard. Exactly. Whereas invisibility is just just not being seen. Yes. And so, uh, and there's a... And he even he says that it's a fuzzier situation. Right. And I guess if you have to make a call, you want to be consistent. And so if stealth is really identified as something that rogues are best at, then that's great. Because you do have um, – not only are you stealthy and hard to be seen, but you are also hard to be heard as well. Whereas where maybe the wizard can't be seen or unseen as well as the rogue mm-hmm. – um, but maybe he could still be heard and, you know, fumbling around and footsteps and all that kind of yeah, thing. I mean, so, it's hard for me to say that any rogue who's just hiding in shadows should be less visible than a wizard who's completely in- magically invisible. Right. You know, the, it seems to me like in that case, the spell should be priority, at least in terms of sight. Right. You know? And he says that there could be um, – what's the word he want to say? Uh, you know, there's kind of an art to it than a science. Yeah. And so there's, you know, I think there are situations where there will be adjudicating factors there. But um, but the fact that they are actually in, in the design process, you know, they have a clear priority in mind. And I like that idea. And it would be really helpful in the classes, you know, when they have the rules come out. If it says something specific, like you are a rogue, here is what you are better at than anyone else. You are really good at being stealthy. You are really good at stealing stuff. You are really good. At- and then say, even it- a wizard's invisibility spell is not as good as you are at higher levels. Exactly, or something to that effect. Right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, as a fighter, you are the best at swinging a sword. Uh, you know, you are going to do the most damage doing that. Um, you know, now, and maybe you know classes that you don't think of the common or the core four. You know, things like bard. It's like Bards are – you are the best at social interaction. No one will be better at it than you are. Um, you know, I just think those are really – those are good things. So, Which is great, but I worry that they're going to have too many classes. Yeah, I'll you be know curious, what I mean? Um, because um, mm-hmm. Wandering Monster went into some weird places in the last month and a half too where uh, he stopped looking at monsters and he started looking more at some of these big design concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And one of the things he do- he talks a little bit about um, is races. And you know, do we want to make a whole bunch of races or do we want to make one basic race with like sub-races or do we want to make right. one basic race and just describe the other sub-races as – the same, the exact same thing mechanically, but had different culture, mm-hmm. um, you know. And so I wonder if this can't fit into the same sort of the same category. You know, we're going to have, um, you know, and even in the in this article, he talked about you know the rogue uh, being the stealthiest of of all the classes. You know, no, nobody's going to be more stealthy, even if they're using spells in most situations. Nobody's going to be more stealthy than the rogue who who chose the the stealth build. So you can right. play a rogue and not be the stealthiest because you didn't chose not to build him as the stealthiest. Mm-hmm. But if you want to be stealthy, you should be a rogue. Yeah. Know? And so yeah, and so I don't. I wonder if it's not going to be. I don't think I. I feel like they're not going to give us a glut of classes, but they're going to give us a, a good handful, maybe a good dozen or so classes, mm-hmm. and then maybe a glut of builds. You know? Yeah, I think we'll mm-hmm. see sub. I think, and it's been pretty clear from earlier articles that I think subclasses is where you're going to see that um, come out at. Yeah, I mean, er, so. yeah. Remember, originally there was only going to be a magic user, and then wizard and sorcerer and all that underneath it, right? right. But that's what my fear is, though that you, that you, if you want a class to be the best at thing X, mm-hmm. and then you make ten subclasses, or or even just three, if there are twelve classes and three subclasses for each of those classes, that's suddenly a huge amount of PCs who are go- the only one that is good at X or the only one that's the best at mm. X. And I feel like that's stretching it a little too thin. Okay. That's, that's my fear. Sure. I mean, you know, who knows? They might do it perfectly. I don't know. Right. But- no, exactly. Right. So, I, I mean, I, I totally get your fear and mm-hmm. we won't know until you yeah, know, the sure. game comes out. Yep. Yeah. Next summer. That's right. <laughs> Make sure to start saving up your pennies and, and buy your copy, pre-order your copy through the, the Tomes Amazon link. 
and that was basically the gist of that article. I, I not a whole lot to talk about, but um, I thought it was. Um, I didn't want it to slip past because, um, like I said, that one was back from that was almost a full month ago. So yeah, and I, and I almost uh, felt like like we could have almost taken the last five Legend mm-hmm. of Lore articles and talked about them largely uh, together because together, the, the yeah. last five Legend of Lore articles are not giving us any real new information. They're more of like essays on the 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 guiding the guidelines right. they gave themselves for designing next, and it could apply to any game, but then the specific examples they give are from next, you know. Right. So, but and and while they didn't give us any new information, I do I do feel like they gave us some interesting insights into how they designed the game. Well, sweet. So two of us went overtime, and and Randall went under. Are we done? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we want to thank you, uh, our listeners, for supporting us by shopping at Amazon and dndclassics.com through our affiliate links. If you go to the tomeshow.com, there will be buttons there. You can click through and order absolutely anything you'd like off of Amazon or D&D Classics, and uh, we'll get a couple of pennies for that. And you can also get a hold of us at thetomeshow.com by emailing us at thetomeshow at gmail.com or call us on the biz line at 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. That's 919-BIZ-TOME. Until next time, this is Jeff Greiner signing out for myself, Sam Dillon, our man in the frigid north, Randall Walker. Randall, go inside and get some cocoa. I'll do that. All right. Keep on Merry gaming, Christmas Tomites. and happy holidays. 